Christian and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin there in a moment in Ephesians chapter 1. Appreciate the leading of those songs, Terry. That is especially the last one, a favorite of mine. And it's wonderful to hear so many voices blended together in praise to our God and adoration for Him, expression of gratitude for all that He's done for us. It's always good to remember the blessings that we have in Christ. We're going to study about one here this morning in a moment. It's certainly good to see everyone out this morning, especially our visitors. We want you to know you're our honored guests. There are several familiar faces. There may be some who have not been here before or are not familiar with our practices, and we want to invite you to ask us any question you might have at the end of service. We would love to be able to study God's Word with you. It's our goal here at 84th Street Church of Christ to do all in accordance with the will of God as we submit to the authority of our all-wise King. And so we seek to be able to give an answer. We don't do anything that we don't feel like Scripture doesn't authorize. And so there may be some of those questions and you'd be a friend to bring any expressions of concern to our attention and we'd love to study with you and talk about those things. It was especially a treat for me this morning to be able to hear my dad break into us the bread of life. I got to listen to sermons like that my whole life growing up, and I I don't take it for granted. Uh, I I can never uh, express enough in words that are aptly enough describe my appreciation for my dad and his work in the kingdom and for my mom and her support of him as they raised us kids to fear the Lord. They did an excellent job. Of course, I'm biased, but I think that you can see in their character that that is certainly the case. He's done so much work in the kingdom, and I admire him greatly and look up to him. And uh, he could probably tell you how many times I've called him with some off-the-wall questions, seeking advice and, and seeking his wisdom. And he's certainly been a foundation for me in my faith, but in, in my preaching the gospel as well. I'm so thankful that you were able to hear his preaching this morning and that you're able to meet my parents. In Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 13, the Apostle Paul speaks of one of many of the spiritual blessings he enumerated in this passage. We passed over it uh, the Wednesday in our study of it, um, not giving it the kind of detail that I think that it deserves, and we're going to do that this morning. He says in verse 13, "...in Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were..." Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. You know, something that we like to talk about as Christians is having confidence in our standing with God. Having confidence in being a member of His family. Having confidence in our inheritance. Having confidence that we are right with Him. And the book of Ephesians really details and outlines some things that provide us that kind of confidence. And it's an important discussion because God wants us to have confidence. In 1 John, he said that he wrote these things that the people that read it might know that they have eternal life, that they may continue to believe and continue to have that confidence standing with God. But sometimes confidence is sought in foolish ways. And I think that a passage like this, as it offers confidence can actually be misapplied and misunderstood and misused. And people can try to gain confidence from it, but oftentimes the confidence they find is not true confidence. 
And we need to make sure we understand what kind of confidence is provided for us by the Scripture, especially in these verses that Paul writes to the Ephesians. Among those spiritual blessings enumerated in Ephesians 1, the fact that we are sealed as Christians, as saints, with the Holy Spirit of promise, and the fact that He acts as a guarantee of our inheritance, is all about us being confident that we're a part of God's family, we're a part of His heritage, and that we indeed do have the hope of eternal life. So, consider that with me this morning, if you will. Anytime we discuss the Holy Spirit, it is imperative that we refresh ourselves with the understanding of His nature. Some might not really have that kind of knowledge. Maybe this is a revelation to you this morning. If you want to talk about these things further, feel free to ask those questions as I invited at the beginning. Because the Holy Spirit is a topic that a lot of people have misunderstandings about. There are a lot of errors about the Holy Spirit that are found in the world. And it's this idea of mysticism that has really invaded our minds that leads to a biased and wrong interpretation of texts such as this and about the Holy Spirit and who He is and what He does and how He works in our lives, even to today. And when we look at Scripture with honesty, it really breaks down for us a very simple-to-understand doctrine about how God works in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's the first essential point to note, that the Holy Spirit is indeed a divine person. There are many places that we can go to to discuss the divine personhood of the Spirit think John chapter 14 is an effective one where Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, is having his final in-depth conversation with his disciples. His apostles is the context. He's speaking to apostles here in John 14, 15, and 16. And he makes them an important promise in John chapter 14 and verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth and the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I want us to notice in verse 18, the promise is central to the fact that while Jesus is going away, he is telling them he'll still be with them. But he won't be with them in this bodily, corporeal presence. He's not going to be with them personally as he was in his ministry. He is certainly going away. And that would have caused them a lot of conflict of mind and anxiety, I suppose, as they considered going into the world as his ambassadors without him by their side. And it would have been impossible for them to fulfill their ministry without a divine helper. And that's the point. When he says in verse 16, I will give you another helper. I think the key is another there. It's a word we recently studied in Galatians, the first chapter, when he talked about turning to a a different gospel, which is not another. It is the Greek word alos. And it's different from heteros in this way. Alos denotes a quantitative difference, and heteros denotes a qualitative difference. And the key is, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, is different as a person. He's a distinct person from Christ, but He is not different in nature. And that's the point. The reason why the Spirit would be a sufficient Helper with the Apostles in their ministry is because He's God as Jesus is God. He would be able to guide them into all truth. As he says in chapter 16, he would be able to reveal to them the word of Christ and his authority. He is a divine person. We read of this in many places in the New Testament, as I mentioned. In Romans 15 and verse 30, the three persons of the divine nature. Those only three persons that share in 
the nature that is deity, that is divine. They're mentioned. When Paul says, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, then through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, you had Christ the Spirit and God the Father. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we shouldn't think about the Spirit differently than we think about God and we think about Christ. When we talk about Christ dwelling in us, it should be with the same kind of understandings as a person dwelling in us, not literally, but by some other means as when we think about the Spirit dwelling in us. The Spirit is a divine person. And because the Spirit's a divine person, another key thing to remember is that He is an intelligent person. Oftentimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit and His role in our lives, especially in the religious world, there are discussions that revolve around mysticism and feelings that raise more questions than they do give answers. But I want to tell you the Spirit is not some confusing, abstract energy in the world. He's not ambiguous. He's an intelligent being. Notice in 1 Corinthians 2 and verses 11 through 13, it speaks about how the Spirit knows the things of God. And it speaks about how the Spirit who is from God is given to us that He might teach, not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The numeric standard Bible speaks of spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He knows and He teaches. In 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 11, in the context of spiritual gifts, the source is given of those gifts. That is the Spirit. And it says He works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. And so He works. He is one who distributes. And He is one who has volition. He has choice. He has will. Look at 1 Timothy 4 in verse 1. The Apostle Paul is warning Timothy about an apostasy to come. And he said, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. You have some who speak of a Holy Spirit language that is some amorphous tongue that we don't really know. But here he says the Spirit not only says, but he expressly says, and in fact the very words he's writing here is the Spirit expressly stating that in latter times some will depart from the faith. He's intelligent. And he communicates in discernible ways. In John 15 and verse 26, again in that context of Jesus speaking to his apostles, speaks about the work of the Spirit and aiding them in their ministry, that the Helper will come and he will testify of me. Verse 26, he gives logical and evidentiary testimony of the deity and sonship of Jesus the Christ. In Acts 16 and verse 6 then, as the apostles, being guided by the Spirit, are being the ambassadors of Christ, having this another helper with them, a divine helper with them. In Acts 16 and verse 6, it says they wanted to go to Asia, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach there at that time. He is one who forbids. And so that's key. It's fundamental, but it's key because it will completely transform the way that we look at and understand and perceive the work of the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He's an intelligent person. And I think the Scripture is very clear that His work revolves around the revelation of the Scripture, the revelation of God's Word. And so when we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, this seal of the Spirit and the fact that He is our guarantee, we need to remember the Spirit's primary work insofar as our salvation and our lives are concerned is through the Word. I'm not saying that He is limited in His divine power in some way only to the Word. The Spirit is not the Word. But I want to tell you, Insofar as his relationship to man is concerned, 
and the stake of our salvation and his role in it. He works through the word. That's how we see it in the New Testament. In Ephesians, the third chapter, and in verse 3, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the dispensation, that is, the stewardship of the grace of God that was committed to his trust. That by revelation, verse 3, God made known to him the mystery, he says, as I have briefly written already, and he says, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. The Spirit revealed the mystery of God. He made the mystery of God no longer a mystery. There was information in God's mind that he had in eternity and had only disclosed bits and pieces that we did not know about. And the Spirit divinely and intelligibly and understandably communicated that to us. That was his work. That's his work today within the Word of God. Notice what that really looks like and amounts to in Second Peter chapter 1. In verse 20, the Apostle Peter, speaking of that even more sure prophetic word, speaks about this process of revelation using apostles and prophets. He says, know this first, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The New King James Version has a footnote there that expresses the word means origin. And that's certainly what he's talking about here. It's not from man, he says. It never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This, this will of God that is revealed, he's saying it didn't come from us. We certainly didn't follow these cunningly devised fables that they were accused of in verse 16. What we were speaking, what we have written, what the prophets have written, it came from God. He moved those holy men, and they wrote these words. The word for moved is Pharaoh, meaning born along. And the idea is that they were just the Spirit's instrument. And chapter 2 and verse 13, as we read of 1 Corinthians, he combined these spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. How did those words get written down? Through men. That's, that's all he's saying here. Inspired men were the pen of God to write his words of eternal life. And so when we read in the Word of God about the Holy Spirit's activity, we always see a parallel. We always see that the Holy Spirit, a distinct divine person, is using the Word as His instrument. That's why in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, it's called the sword of the Spirit. As a person would wield a sword, the Spirit wields the Word. He's active today. The question is, how is he active? Through what means? And the scripture tells us he is active through the word of God. You notice that in verse 17 of Ephesians 5. He mentioned that they need to understand what the will of the Lord is. He tells us how we would do that. Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. That's a socia, unsavedness. You get drunk with wine, it won't lead to your salvation. It will only lower your inhibitions and it will fog your perception but be filled with the Spirit. That's where you have this divine instruction. Notice what he says in verse 19. One of the ways we're filled with the Spirit is to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's a parallel passage to this, and it's important to know. Where in Ephesians 5.17, he's talking about understanding the will of the Lord by being filled with the Spirit, by speaking in songs. In Colossians 3 and verse 2, he says, Put your mind on things above. Put your mind on the will of God. Put your mind on His authority. In verse 16 of Colossians 3, He gives us that parallel. 
what it means to be filled with the Spirit through these songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so that's what we see throughout the Scripture. In John 16 and in verse 8, for example, the Spirit's work is revealed by Jesus, and He says when He comes, He will convict the world of sin. He convicts the world that they are in their sins and that they are in need of salvation. Notice the elders' work in Titus 1 and verse 9. They're to hold fast the faithful word. Why? That He may be able by sound doctrine, found in that faithful word, to exhort and convict those who contradict. That'll teach us to think a second before we rebel against the convicting words of an elder of a congregation. So that's the Holy Spirit convicting through the Word of God. Or, for example, in Hebrews 10 and in verse 15, in a context speaking of the all-sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, that the blood of bulls and goats, it was not sufficient, and in fact, that old law is done away with because... The sacrifice that was sufficient to end all sacrifices came. And what the Hebrew writer does is he says, The Holy Spirit witnesses to us also. For after he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. He adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, he says, There is no longer an offering for sin. He's quoting from what the Spirit had revealed through the pen of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. And there's something also interesting to note, that the Spirit is witnessing to the validity of Christ's sacrifice, but also the necessary conclusion, the necessary implication, the necessary inference that His sacrifice being sufficient, where all sins are forgiven and remembered no more, means there is no need for any more sacrifice. Do you understand that? There's a lot of people today that are questioning the validity of necessary implication, of necessary conclusion. That's how the Holy Spirit witnesses some things to us. That's how He witnesses to us through the words of Scripture that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient and we're in need of no other sacrifice. The fact that the sins are forgiven and remembered no more means that a sacrifice occurred that was sufficient. In John 3 and in verse 5, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus by night said, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Yet the birth that puts us into that kingdom of God is spoken of by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. That we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. The Spirit is the one where we are born by and the Word is what we're born by as well. Notice there, also in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, it speaks of the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart from sin for the service of God. But notice in John 17 and in verse 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It makes sense then that in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, they're together. When Paul says, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It is certainly true that the Spirit is at work today. It's certainly true that without His work, we cannot be saved. We cannot have hope. But it's certainly true that the Spirit works through His 
word. And so when we talk about in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 through 14, this seal of the Spirit and the fact that He acts as a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, it's imperative that we understand those fundamental underlying principles. There are presuppositions to understanding the text of Ephesians 1 and verses 13 and 14, and they are that the Spirit is a divine person who is intelligent and works through the Word of God. And there is ample evidence that we haven't even investigated in this sermon that shows the same point is true. What then is the seal of the Spirit? There are nouns and verbs that are translated from the same root that speak about a seal in the New Testament. The noun is fragis, and it has reference to the instrument used for stamping, like a signet ring. It can also have reference to the substance, which bears the imprint of a signet ring, like wax, a wax seal, and the impression itself is considered. But figuratively, and what all of those things always had to do with, was confirming something, to authenticate something, to attest to something, to confirm something, and certify something is true. When the king gives a word, he puts his seal on it, and you can trust, as it has the king's seal, it bears his authentication, certification, his authority. It carries weight, in other words. This word is used throughout the New Testament in various contexts. Notice it's used in Romans, the fourth chapter, and in verse 11, where the Apostle Paul is seeking to make emphasis on the fact that we're not saved according to the law of Moses. We're not justified according to the law of Moses, but by faith, according to God's grace. And a key argument for that is that the father of the Jews, the father of all believers was justified before the law had even come and certainly justified before circumcision. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so he says in Romans 4 and verse 11 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he may be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. The Jews understood that circumcision was a sign. In Genesis 17, it's very clearly demonstrated that the sign of circumcision was a sign of the covenant. But there was something else about this that they missed, that they didn't understand, and Paul points it out. He received the sign of circumcision, but circumcision was not just a sign of the covenant, it was a seal of the righteousness of faith he had while uncircumcised. Here's something that authenticates that you are right with God by faith. Genesis 15, 6 is what the text begins with a quotation of. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The fact that Abraham was circumcised to him personally was a certification, a confirmation, authenticity of his right standing with God. In 1 Corinthians 9 and in verse 2, the Apostle Paul uses the word, saying, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, Why? For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There may be others that doubt. You shouldn't because you're the very authentication of my apostleship. You want to see certification of me being an ambassador of the Lord? You may question it because I was born out of due time, that I wasn't with the other apostles in the ministry of Christ as they were. Don't question it because you are the very seal, the certification of my apostleship. In what way? You notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 how he came to them. In verse 2, 
He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words in human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He says then in chapter 4 and verse 15, that though they may have many fathers or 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the Gospel. The fact that He went to them and preached the Gospel... And the gospel itself was witnessed to by God through signs, wonders, and various miracles. The fact that the spirit of power was among them in the preaching of Paul's gospel verified his word is true, his word is God's, and that's why they believed it. The fact that he came with those signs, the fact that he came with the truth, the fact that they believed it as true and received salvation and became children of God because of his work verifies, certifies, authenticates, the fact that he is indeed an apostle. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul uses the word again, saying that the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Might I suggest to you the foundation of God which stands is the very foundation which he encourages Timothy to be diligent to present himself to prove on. In verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As Ephesians 2 mentions, we were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. That foundation is solid, but it bears a seal. The Lord knows those who are His. How can we be authenticated as children of God? And this is going into the point of Ephesians 1.13. How can we be sure that we are certified as children of God? The foundation of truth has the seal that God knows those who are His. If we submit to the truth and walk by the truth, we can know, as God knows, that we are His. Which is why He says, depart from iniquity if you name the name of Christ. Sfragito is the verb form of this word, meaning an action of certification or an action of acknowledging and authenticating. In John chapter 3, And verses 31 through 33, nearing the end of John's ministry where he would give everything over to the bridegroom who came. says, He who comes is from above all, uh, or from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony, but he who has received his testimony certified that God is true. Jesus came as God in the flesh to reveal the Father. And people rejected Him as that and therefore rejected who God is. And He's saying those who accepted Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, they give their seal, their certification of God being true. In John 6 and verse 27 in His ministry, His miracles showed that He was, especially as He fulfilled prophecy, the One who was sealed to give everlasting life. God the Father has set His seal on Him. And so when we're speaking about the seal of the Holy Spirit, We're speaking about us being identified as something. Us being authenticated as someone. Us being certified to belong to someone. Namely, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says in verse 11, that in Him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, or we were made a heritage, the American Standard Version more rightly and accurately puts it, to the end that we should be unto the praise of His glory who had first hoped in Christ. He's speaking of certification of being God's sons, of being His portion, of being His people, of belonging to Him. 
And this seal of the Spirit is a guarantee also until the redemption of God's own possession, the American Standard Version puts it. And so we're seeking certification and authenticity of being God's family, of being God's sons, of being those who indeed have an inheritance waiting for us. He says the seal of the Spirit certifies then that you are indeed God's child. But notice how that works here in verse 13. He says, In Him you also, after you heard the word of truth, sounds familiar to what we were talking about before, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed, what? The word of truth, the gospel, Christ through it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What affected the Holy Spirit's seal is our hearing and believing of the gospel message. It happened through the word of truth. And time and again through Scripture, what we see is this seal where we find authentication for our relationship with God and Christ. And the Spirit being involved in that, the seal of the Spirit, is the Word of God right by it. Is the Word of God authenticating us as His children. Notice in Romans the 8th chapter, in Romans chapter 8, we see the authenticity as being God's sons through the Spirit's work. Noting first in Romans 8, Spirit is really referring to three different things. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be a man's spirit, and it could be a disposition. But I want us to notice something important beginning in verse 1. He says that we have no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What is a law associated with the Spirit which frees us from sin and death? It's that gospel of Christ. That is the power of God of salvation. Romans 1 and verse 16. And that's important to remember throughout this text because man's spirit needs to be subject to the Holy Spirit through the gospel and it provides us the blessing that we read of in verses 12 through 17. He tells them as those who have been added to Christ Jesus, who are walking according to the Spirit and thus given life and vitality to serve God, that we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you lived according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And he explains why. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's that disposition. You're not a, a slave that fears, but you are now one who joyously rejoices and calls on your Father. And how do you know? Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When the Holy Spirit directs us through the law of the Spirit, the Gospel of Christ, the Word of Christ, and our spirit submits to His teaching, those two things attest to the fact that we're a child of God. We have done what He's told us to do and are therefore those who belong to Him. I want us to notice something else, though, in this very text. He says in verse 17, If you're children, then you're heirs. Your heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. He places a condition upon it. Yes, your spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit that you're children of God, but he says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I believe that there's a work of the Spirit in this as well. And the Scripture bears witness to that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, if you suffer with him, and that's key. 
He's not preaching asceticism. He's not saying you can know you're a child of God if you, if you hurt yourself, you deface your body, if you neglect your body with some other thing. He's saying you know you're a child of God if by submission to Christ's teaching, if by submission to the Spirit's teaching, you are therefore in fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. That's Paul wanted in Philippians chapter 3 and in verse 10. If that's the condition you suffer with him. I know I'm a son of God through submission to the Spirit's teaching, and that will involve a submission to the Spirit's teaching to the point of suffering. Notice in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for... The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. In what way does the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you? Throughout the entirety of this context, he is speaking about suffering for doing good. And that blessedness is the same blessedness that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are you when they persecute you, for my name's sake. The prophets were as well. The fact that we're suffering, not just period, but for doing the will of God, certifies that we're right with Him, that we're His children. Not for suffering for any reason. Notice in verse 15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in others' matters. If anyone suffers, though, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. When we submit to the Spirit's teachings, we're verified as children of God. When we continue to submit to the Spirit's teachings, no matter what suffering may come as a result of it, certainly we're identified with God. In Christ, with His Word, we are children of God. Scripture also speaks about this verification of being God's child through the Spirit's work. In Titus, the third chapter, and in verse 5, we see something at work here with the Spirit's work through the Word that verifies our connection with God in Christ. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, he explains that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's parallel with John 3 and verse 5, being born again of water in the Spirit. Washing of regeneration, born of water, renewing of the Holy Spirit, born of the Spirit. It's also parallel to what Jesus is said to have done to the church in Ephesians 5 and in verse 26, as he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. In Romans chapter 6 and in verse 4, it speaks about our baptism with him. And as he was raised, we were raised to walk in newness of life. What did the Spirit have to do with that? The Spirit told us what to do. And when we did it, we were born of the Spirit. Or as 1 Peter 1 tells us, as we talked about before, that we were born of that incorruptible seed through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. That happens in baptism, where there is a renewing of our spirit, and it happens day by day, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and in verse 16, through the renewing of our inward man. Notice in chapter 4 of Ephesians, that continuing thought of the Spirit's work, and the fact that He is a seal of our inheritance of us being children of God. In Ephesians 4 and verse 17, he contrasts the way the Gentiles walk with how the Christians had learned in Christ to walk, that they put off the old man, 
with the former lust and be renewed in the spirit of their mind and put on the new man. How does that work? Renewed in the spirit of your mind as you take on the Spirit's direction and instruction. As you submit to His teaching. And notice as He goes on, He talks about putting away lying, but speaking the truth. Change your character as you're renewed in your mind to submit to the Spirit's work. And notice what He says in Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we submit to the Spirit's teaching, when we have our mind changed and our actions changed accordingly, we bring glory and joy to the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for that day of redemption. And lastly, in Galatians 5, we read of the fact that when we bear the fruits of the Spirit, we show our connection with Him. Notice in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, We through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. I believe that a better reading of that is, We through the Spirit by faith eagerly hope for the hope of righteousness. Wait for the hope of righteousness. And so it's through the Spirit, by faith, the Spirit is at work in this, and our faith is a part of this. And what does the Spirit and faith have anything to do with each other? When we are living by faith, we are submitting to the Spirit's teaching. We're not giving ourselves over to our lust of the flesh, but we are denying ourselves, not doing what we wish. We're not bearing the works of the flesh or acting in that way, but bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And he says in verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. We can certainly know that we're children of God as we submit to the Spirit's teaching. But you notice something else there in Ephesians 1. He doesn't just say that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He says this Holy Spirit of promise is a guarantee of our inheritance. The word guarantee in the Greek is arhabon. It means a pledge as defined by strong. Part of the purchase money or property given in advance as security for the rest. You might have a footnote that says down payment. That's the idea. You give part of the payment and the rest is to come. That's what that indicates. I'm going to put my down payment down. I'm going to give my earnest money. And that is a promise. That is a guarantee that the rest is going to come. The Holy Spirit is that down payment. But how? You notice he calls him the Holy Spirit of promise in verse 13. Dad talked about that a little bit, about the strength of Israel, the fact that he's constant and he's consistent and he does not change. And his word bears immense weight for the negative that we need to beware of, but also for the positive that we can take solace in. In Titus 1 and in verse 2, speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. The fact that God through the Holy Spirit has made promises is as good as receiving those promises if we understand faith. We know that we'll receive the promises based on the simple fact that God has promised. And we saw that in Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 13 through 18. But one more thing, and we'll get through this quickly. Thank you for your attention. The Spirit acts as a down payment, a guarantee as we're transformed by His will. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, we recently studied about how those promises lead us to participation in the divine nature. That is that transformation Aaron talked about in class this morning. This is what you were, and by God's power and His grace and His love, this is what you are and are to grow in and continue in. Be strengthened with His Spirit, by mind and His inner man, Ephesians 3 speaks about. We are promised to be participators in the divine nature, to be changed in our inward man. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
in verse 22, when the Apostle Paul is showing the validity of his apostleship to people who are doubting based on the false teacher's erroneous claims, he says in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 1, that He establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Sounds a lot like Ephesians 1 and verses 13 and 14. I think there's a reason for that. The fact that through the Apostle Paul's teaching, they were added to the body of Christ, certified to be God's children, given the down payment, a guarantee of their inheritance in the Spirit, and the fact that Paul and the other apostles are partakers of those same things, it shows that these other people, they're false apostles. They don't have the track record that Paul has. They don't have the things that Paul would go on to reluctantly boast in in chapter 11. The fact that we're both sealed, the fact that we both have this guarantee of our inheritance, the fact that we're both being transformed by the things we're teaching you, not them, is verification of his apostleship, is verification of their sonship, and the fact that they did indeed have an inheritance laying up for them. The text continues in chapter 3 and verse 18 in contrast to the ministry of Moses, whose glory was passing away, pales in comparison to the ministry of the apostles in Christ. He says in verse 18 of chapter 3, We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's not just for the apostles, though. continues in chapter 4, in verse 4, speaking about the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Some don't want that to shine on them. That's exactly what the apostles were commissioned to do. To have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shine forth in the face of Christ. But what does that affect? What, what does that do for these people? In verse 12, he says, Death is working in us apostles. He says, We have this in earthen vessels. The excellence of the power may be of God and not us. And so death is working in us. But as we preach the gospel to you, and we're dying daily for it, life is working in you. We're being transformed from glory to glory. But you also, as we preach to you, and as you accept the gospel as true, and you submit to it, life is working in you. And then he has confidence. Why do you keep speaking this if you're in pain and suffering? He says, we believed and therefore we spoke, knowing, verse 14, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. Why do you know that? Why are you confident in that? Because life is working in us. And that's what he goes on to indicate in verse 16. Notice, We do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, we're dying. Life is working in you. We're going to speak because we believe even though we're suffering, our outward man is perishing. We don't lose heart, though, because our inward man is being renewed day by day. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And there is no division going into chapter 5. What I'm looking at is that glorious hope of an eternal abode. This house, this tent, it's going to be destroyed. But we are confident because we know we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, notice, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Notice here, now he who has prepared us, he's prepared us for this very thing, is God, 
who also has given us a spirit, or the spirit, as a guarantee. What's that guarantee? What's that down payment? It's part of this preparation. It's part of this preparation for the transformation into that glorious image of Christ. We don't know what He is, 1 John 3. But we know that when He appears, we shall be with Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What's that down payment? What gives Him so much confidence? Life is working in us. Our inward man is being renewed day by day. This is just light affliction, and what it's doing as we submit to the Spirit's teaching is it's working toward us that exceedingly eternal weight of glory. I'm being transformed in my inward man. And so I have no doubt, if I can be transformed into the image of Christ spiritually now, that God can change my body in the end. He can give me that glorious immortality, that glorious home in heaven, that inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled that is reserved in heaven for us and does not fade away. You see that? If you're transformed now, if you're changed completely now, if you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit now, if you're walking according to the Spirit's teaching now, you're a completely different person, a changed person. You're bearing the image of Christ in your inward man. God's going to be able to change you in the end. That's the down payment. That is the first payment of the rest that is to come. Which is why he words it this way in Ephesians, the first chapter, and in verse 14. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. He's purchased us, and we belong to Him. Not in this state, though. We belong to Him, and people can tell that by the renewal and the transformation of our inward man, by our bearing the fruit of the Spirit, living sanctified and holy lives. They can tell through those works that we are the children of God, but not by looking at our flesh. Oh, we belong to Him now. We don't belong to Him for eternity in this corruptible form. But this redemption and this transformation inwardly verifies, it certifies we're His, and it acts as that guarantee that we will be in heaven with Him for eternity if we continue in this state. We will be changed immensely. All the pain and all the sorrow, all the tears, all the anguish, all the struggles and frustrations of this mortal body will be no more. And you had better believe that because if God can change you, if His power is sufficient to change you inwardly, then why would we ever doubt that He could change us in our body for eternity? We have immense confidence as His children. We have so much to be thankful for and we have no reason to doubt. And if we ever do fall into those doubts, we have every tool we need to get out of them and find confidence and assurance in Christ. But it's not through some feeling. It's not through some abstract energy or power that the world talks about, it's, it's through the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, through knowing God's will, doing God's will, and trusting that when He promises, it is certain. We want to offer you that invitation to find that certainty this day. If you have not obeyed the gospel, we urge you to do so before it's too late. That's part of that certification. If you have not believed and been baptized for the remission of sins, you can't say you have confidence you're a child of God. That's what Jesus said is necessary to do to be added to the body of Christ. But we can help you with that this morning if that is a desire that you have. If there's any other spiritual need, we urge you to come forward while we stand and sing.